You're listening to Aaron on Air. In this episode, a special guest is featured as part of Podcast Showcase Week, invited to discuss their own podcast journey. Enjoy the interview. So for everybody listening, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. So I'm Dr. K, I'm Dr. Kawanda, if you can say it. Um, man, what, what, do I, what can I say? I'm a career educator. I've been teaching high school for about 20 years and um, university professor where I work in a school of education, working with prospective teachers on their credentials. I've been doing that about 10 years. And then I have this podcast also that I'm happy to um, continue to do called Let's Chew the Gum and I operate a, and own and operate a television channel on Watch TV where I make access to television available for non-traditional filmmakers and, and traditional filmmakers alike, but I like to go for the underdogs. And then I operate a nonprofit called SCORE, which is Securing Communities of Racial Equity. And then I'm a Detroit fan, all Detroit sports all the time. Lions, Tigers, no bears. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I actually grew up in Michigan. I was born and raised there. Oh, how about that? Homegirl. So I definitely, yeah, I definitely know all about the Lions. Yes, I was born in Muskegon and okay. raised in Grand Rapids, and now my family's in Detroit. Okay, mm-hmm. sounds good. Good deal. Yeah. So it's the place. I definitely left there to kind of branch out in the world and get into more of like a technical area out here in Seattle, since that's where a lot of tech lives. Right. Um, but yeah, so... I love that. And your podcast, Let's Chew the Gum. Can you tell me how you came up with the name of the podcast? Because I know that chewing gum is like processing and like thinking a little bit more. That's what comes to mind when I hear your title. But how'd you come up with that? Well, interestingly, I was going, uh, traveling down uh, to teach my class at the university. And and during that time, I was really in my creative space. I was writing my sketches for my stand-up comedy and just sort of you know, not writing, really speaking into a voice recorder while I drive. And um, I like to chew gum when I process because it helps me to breathe and to kind of focus. And that, that sort of started as a teenager when I played, you know, I didn't play basketball for, for teams, but just playing sports, period. I would chew gum and help me to regulate my breathing. And I noticed that I would have more stamina because I was, you know, had this rhythm going. And this is before Michael Jordan with his gum. Uh, but... Um, one particular day I was driving down chewing my gum and I was um, and in my class at the university and I was lecturing and about 30 minutes into the lecture I realized that I was still chewing my gum I didn't spit it out you know and I thought oh man you know you're not supposed to talk and chew gum right and so I, I was apologizing to the class and man I apologize I've been chewing gum this whole time I forgot to take it out and you know, to a person in the in the in the classroom, they all said, "No, professor, it's good. The lecture is good. It's it's flowing good." And I was like, "Okay, well, let's chew the gum, right?" And so now it's sort of this metaphor of you know, so let's let's kind of talk about it. Like you know, some people will say, "Let's chew the fat" when you're talking, and so let's chew the gum is all about that. Let's right. let's talk about the topics, whatever they may be. So that's how the name came about, and 
anything. Yeah. I love when we can lean into like authentic things about who we are and like what is going on in our life and kind of like bring that into motion and put more meaning behind it. And I think that's really cool. Your latest episode was going deep into a topic about doing better things for the community, coming from one space and going into something in a more positive direction. Um, and I just wanted to tell you that I think the guest that you selected was excellent. I want people to go listen to it. So I'm not going to tell too much, but right, right. it really did uh, chew the gum for me about the topic of drugs and coming on the other side of that and doing better for your life. So how do you come up with your guest list? Like, how do you select the people that you want to chew the gum with? You know, it, it really varies. Sometimes I'm, I'm a part of a lot of uh, community groups and some, even some social media groups. And uh, maybe I've, I've been reading up on a particular topic and, and I'll see someone that I'm intrigued by and, and want to have a conversation with, and, and I'll just reach out. Um, other times, you know, I have specific topics that I know I want to discuss and I'll access, you know, someone in my network who was an expert in a particular area for, you know, for example, um, during COVID, we did when we were going back to schools. I did a, a top a show on back to school with COVID, and I wanted to get the perspective of teachers, students, parents. So I mm -hmm. reached out to some that I knew, and then educators, um, um, members of the California Teachers Association. So really, just accessing the, the network of people that I know. Um, sometimes someone will recommend a guest and say, "Man, you should have that person on the show." Or you know, sometimes audience members even around the world they'll chime in on a particular topic and I'll say, yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. And I'll kind of find someone that I feel would be a great guest to speak on that particular topic. And so it's, it's a variety of ways that, that um, I acquire my guests. Very like comfortable, almost like you knew them before. And I really admire that about your show. So getting to know you a little bit more, part of your whole concept of like all the things you've, you've achieved for me at least, is like, I'm empowering, I'm going out to the community, I'm doing more. You would think that once you became a doctor, you've reached the peak of what you can do as a human being contributing back to society, at least in my opinion, that you didn't stop at being a doctor. Like, I just want to know more about that. Right. And, and sure. And just to just to clarify for folks that may misunderstand, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, right? So I'm a, I have a doctorate in educational leadership for social justice, right? And, and but to answer the question specifically, I think that I, I pursued that doctorate to have uh, to acquire a, more of an eagle eyes view of what's out there, right? Because I've lived the experience myself growing up in the inner cities of Detroit, South Central Los Angeles, and, and having an extensive career in education and military, so I, life experience there, right? But to be able to have that overarching degree, that terminal mm -hmm. degree, to give some authority, right? I've always felt that my position and my points were valid from my lived experience but i found that in the field of education sometimes it wasn't always respected um, because you didn't have a particular you know uh, a prefix mm -hmm. or suffix before or after your name and i never thought that that was necessary um, but just for the field that mm -hmm. i was in I, I thought you know and initially to be honest i was going to pursue law school i wanted to go to law school and get a law degree uh, because I'm very um, passionate about yeah, educational justice and educational law. But I, I found a program that had um, 
enough of educational law components that it, it kind of satisfied my need and my desire. And so I went that route. Um, but the whole purpose was always to be an example for others to show that, you know, someone like them could attain, but also to utilize whatever skill sets and whatever accolades that I could acquire to help and give back. So it's never been a situation mm -hmm. where I felt um, like uh, leaving the community or leaving individuals behind. It's always been about how can I improve myself and better myself to continue to help people, to have more influence, uh, to be able to help people, to find myself into those spaces where decisions are made so that I can mm -hmm. be more effective in what it was I was already trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I believe the president's uh, wife, Jill, she has a doctorate of education as well. So it's just really impressive to have that. And I understand that it is a piece of, you know, getting your voice out there in that authoritative position, but you also have a side to you that's very approachable. And it's like, there's that real intention and intentionality behind what you talk about that dives deeper, but it also is something you can relate to. So being your authentic self, like how important is it to be authentic in everything that you do, no matter if it's a podcast or a business or something you're passionate about, like the core of authenticity, like how important is that? You know, I, I think that's that's very important and, and it comes naturally. I think what, um, at least from my perspective, what would be difficult is not being authentic, you know, um, for, you know, putting on personas or or really not being true to myself, right? I have to live with myself 24 seven, right? And so um, I, I want people to be able to, right. I want to be, right? I want to be approachable. I, I want to be who I am all the time because that, that's a, a lot to carry, you know, being something that you aren't. Um, and so that, that's mm -hmm. always been something, you know, as a teenager, you know, you people would have the phrase sometimes, you know, don't sell out that type of deal. And, and it's not about not selling out. It's just about, you know, mm -hmm. unto thyself be true. I, you know, I am who I am at the end, end of the day, because for me not to be authentic would mean that I may not be able to have the influence or the reach with the people that I want to have that that relationship with. And I think people can sense when you're not authentic, you know, when it's a when it's a fake or a sham or, or whatnot. And, and I just never want to be that. I just want to be me. Right. I never it was never about titles. It was never about accolades. It's just like, hey, man, this, this is who I am. Leave it. Love it or leave it. Right. Mm hmm. Was there a pivotal moment for you that you knew it was okay to be you? Wow. Um, you know what? I, I think I think it was something that was just uh, embedded into me growing up as a child. I think that was reinforced as a child, um, um, mainly and particularly from my mother, you know, who would frequently say, you know, never forget who you are don't forget who you are, you know? Um, so I think it was, it was not a point of understanding it's okay, but you know, throughout, you know, life, I have been in places where I felt um, that who I was, was not necessarily accepted. And maybe I might have to alter who I was, but that became very uncomfortable really quick. Right. And I thought, well, if I have to, if I can't be myself, I don't want to be here. You know, I had a conversation with a, a student of mine who's, um, working on a she, you know, master's degree, I think she already has one, but she's working on another one. And um, she was asking me about, you know, how she should present herself uh, for a position in education as far as her cover sheet goes. And um, 
Um, she was concerned that if she sounded too socially just or if she sounds too progressive, that it would keep her from getting the job that she wanted. And I, and I understand that, right? Sometimes, you know, you want to get in the door and then maybe you can make changes. But my response to her was, I said, you know, think about this. If you have to hide who you are to get a job that you think you want, you know, what happens when you get there? Do you really want to work somewhere or and be employed by someone who's not accepting you for who you are? And I said, just being your authentic self, there'll be people that gravitate towards that, right? And so don't be afraid to be who you are to try to please or to get in the door somewhere because it may, you know, you may invite yourself to some type of uncomfortable situation. So I just believe, you know, as a part of social justice, we all should be able to be who we are. And as a society, we have to overcome the ignorances that have held us back and kept us apart in the past that says you have to fit a certain mold to be accepted in a certain space. And I think there's enough people now breaking those modes that mm -hmm. we have the ability to create spaces where everyone is accepted. And if it's not there, it's down the hall. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, part of right. lyrics from a Bob, Bob Marley that. song, and one of, my, one of my favorite lyrics from a Bob Marley song says, you know, and it's probably biblical or whatnot, but I think it says something to the effect of, don't you know when one, when one door closes, many more are open. And sometimes we can be in such desperate positions mm -hmm. to get in a door that we think, you know, we focus so much on that one door as if that's the end all and be all and not realizing that there are many doors. And if that one doesn't open, you know, it may be uncomfortable, but don't be afraid to keep knocking. And if all else fails, create your own door. A lot of things you said, I definitely agree with. Um, one thing that I live by is speak your truth and you will be heard. Because if you're lying and you're making things up, it's not going to be something you can just circle back to. Eventually, it's going to fall on deaf ears because it's not true enough. Things ring true when you're speaking your truth. And that's the only way you're going to get your needs met is when you are being true. Um, for the student of yours that was, you know, struggling with, like, how progressive do I be? I would say that is definitely a common thing right now especially in corporate America, you see people in high up positions in diversity and equity getting let go and laid off by the thousands, right? Diversity and inclusion is under attack, in my opinion, at least socially, you know, in corporate America. So with her master's degrees and the things she's pursuing, I think that's a very plausible, like understandable fear. Um, and like holding on to your authentic self, despite the social uh, atmosphere and, and those things, that's really tough. So how do you teach your students? Like, how do you instill in them on an ongoing basis to, to remember who they are? Well, well first of all, you know, uh, it's, it's really an attempt to, um, influence the institutions that my students are going to, you know, matriculate mm -hmm. into. Right. And I, I think that's where it starts because, you know, mm -hmm. we have, I don't want to invite them to a situation where there's that uh, disruption or there's that anxiety that they have to be a certain way, right? So one of the things I always say is that, for mm -hmm. example, you have to you have to teach the students that are coming into the classroom, right? And it's the same message that I would give to administrators and and school board members is that we have to create these spaces that are equitable for all students, right? We have certain types that we may, mm -hmm. you know, have an affinity for certain types that we may want to be around. And, and that's maybe normal. 
But if you're going to go into a, a field of public service, such as education, right, you have to understand that you don't get to teach who you want to. Whoever comes through the door is deserving of an education and an opportunity. And they may not align with you ethically. They may not align with you racially, spiritually, emotionally, racial-wise, or whatever, but that's not the point. This is a public yeah. institution, right, paid for by public monies. And so there has to be an equal and equitable access. And so, you know, I'm, I'm more concerned with, you know, uh, modifying and, and getting institutions to recognize that so that they become places of, of equity as opposed to trying to manipulate my students and their approach and their attitudes to figure out how to get into them. Now that still exists and we have, that's the reality that we have to face that all of our institutions are not socially just. All of our institutions are not, mm -hmm. you know, in, in that, that space. And so that's, that's more of the um, uh, battle for lack of a better term that, that I'm approaching is let's, let's, emphasize equity and equitable access mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense because a lot of time when you're having like even just a simple discussion about diversity and equity and inclusion a lot of the work is put on people who are affected or assumed to be in those communities to do the educating and so i like what you're saying is that like i'm helping people go out as themselves, but I'm also speaking to the people in charge, like this needs to be a safe space for them, not necessarily building up their like armor to say like, I can handle being in an unsafe space and be myself and it's still not a way to live. So I like that you're looking at it from like zoomed out and not just like one person at a time because that is taxing and yeah. it is hard um, and code switching is a thing. And, um, you know, it's just, it's difficult to navigate. So I appreciate that you brought that up. It's really important. So as far as, like you said, creating a safe space, what do you do to create a safe space for your students? Like, what is it like to work with you? Sure. Well, I'll say this. I'll start from, from my high school classes first. You know, in my, in my high school classes, starting with parents, administrators, or whoever, they know day one because I make it evident this is a, space, a safe space for everyone, right? And, and we don't ridicule in my class, right? And so we, we work on communication. We work on understanding how to be accepting of others that are different and not this idea of being so egocentric that everything has to revolve around you. And so I create those mm -hmm. safe spaces. Day one, the first two weeks of class, we don't even open books or talk about the curriculum. It's all about creating the atmosphere and the expectations of that environment. And we work on it. And, and when something, someone violates it, we stop right away and have that discussion. Hey, what's wrong with this situation? And so I always say, I don't care if you're white, black, brown, Puerto Rican, Asian, or any persuasion, you're welcome here. And I emphasize it over and over to make folks comfortable. And uh, there's also a component of vulnerability where I openly share about me and who I am and all of my, you know, identities, if for lack of a better term, to, to individuals that don't even know me. And the idea there is that if I can be that vulnerable and show that much vulnerability and open myself to scrutiny and ridicule even for some that don't understand, it creates a sense of others that, wow, I can, I can share in this space too. I can be who I am too. And, and, and we practice it and, and we emphasize it to the point where 
students of all races and ages, you know, frequently come to my classroom at lunchtime to hang out. Students I don't even know that kind of get the vibe of it will come and hang out at lunch and just come on in and, and to be the, their authentic selves, to, to know that there's a safe space to have expression. And, and, you know, I help them to, you know, amplify their voices and to encourage them to have a voice for others so that we can sort of multiply this effect. And, and, and that's just, um, that's just the, the way it is. Um, and, and that's a part of being a social mm -hmm. justice um, leader because, you know, you have to take yourself out of the position of egocentrism. Um, I may not always agree with what my students say or what they believe, right? But that's not mm -hmm. the point. Who says that I have to be the end all and be all, or it's my criteria that I have to meet? And so when I'm working with teachers also, and I'm telling them, hey, you know, this old school way of, you know, students have to come in and adhere to who you are. There's some structures, of course, that have to be in place. But when you have 200 students, how can you ethically right. say, that they all have to adhere and be mm -hmm. like you. When we're one person working with so many, we should be flexible enough to understand who our students right. are and what they need. And we need to adjust and sort of, you know, change that aspect of ourselves. Something really uh, valuable that I heard you mention was about vulnerability. And I think people underestimate how powerful and how meaningful being vulnerable is in many contexts, whether that's in a teaching role or in a learning role, being vulnerable plays a huge part. So I was wondering on a personal note, do you remember the first time you felt vulnerable or said and spoke on something and really embraced vulnerability? Yeah, I, actually I do. Hold on, there's a bell, but we're good. No, actually, Actually, I, I do remember it was um, around the first time starting a community college and um, I was I was 30. First of all, when I went back to college, I didn't go back until I was 30. Um, but I remember seeing lots of students in, in the student center in the hallways, just kind of playing around, you know, some younger, some my age. And I thought, man, what a waste of time. Like they're not going to class. and. Meanwhile, I'm 30 and I'm thinking, you know, I really got to get it. You know, I'm a black man. I got to make up for time. I got to make up for, you know, inequities. And I really have to be excellent so that when I'm ready to transfer to a four year, you know, there'll be no denying that this is a student they want. So I started doing quite a few, you know, became a club leader of Future Teachers of America, that type of deal. Um, eventually president of Phi Theta Kappa Honor Society and um, ASB vice president, all these types of leadership positions. Um, and then um, I talked with the uh, administrator, I believe on campus or a staff member. And I was saying, man, there's so many people that look like me that are just wasting this opportunity. And he says, you know, we need to start a BSU, a black student union. I thought, yeah, yeah. He said, you should be the leader. I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing so much, but you know, here I am. I, 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 how can I understand the problem and the issue, but then wait for someone else to do it, right? So I'm thinking, okay, for sure. So we'll, we'll make this happen. At any rate, so we start the BSU and it's going well. Students are getting the message. We're putting out positive messages, you know, excellence, academics, historical, et cetera. And so we're seeing some changes. And um, then there were a group of students, happened to be white students. Some of them were avowed racist, and it was evident. Um, but I started hearing them chatter up around campus about them wanting to start a white student union. 
And, um, you know, so there's this ruckus about, you know, well, you guys have everything else and you have all the channels. We just have BET, that, that type of uh, dialogue going on. But they organized to form a mm -hmm. white student union. And a lot of students were saying they can't do that. They can't have a white student union, yada, yada, yada. I stop everyone and I say, why can't they? Why, why can't they have a white student union? You know, how is it that you can have a black student union and they can't have a white mm. student union? Now, I didn't believe in any of the rhetoric that they espouse. I didn't believe in, in their ideologies mm -hmm. at all, right? And so for me to stand up in front of the entire black student union and a lot of the black uh, community members to say, I'm gonna support them in having their white student union because I firmly believe that if I wanna have the rights that I'm demanding and I feel entitled to, I have to be able to give that to everyone else. And it doesn't matter if I believe in what they're saying, what they're doing, that's not the point. They don't have to believe in what I'm saying or doing it. So that's a, that was a huge step for me because I didn't believe at all in what they were saying and I knew they were racist, right? Um, but to take that stand in front of a whole crowd of people that were also against them, but on this stance of social justice, what is socially just here? We don't get to we don't get to pick and choose. How can you again? How can you demand and say you have these rights, but you don't want to give it to them? And so there's someone I forget his name in history who has this famous saying, and it says, "I may not agree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it." And that was quite vulnerable for me because I laid myself out for ridicule, and I got called all types of names, you know, sellout and traitor and all types of things, right? That you know, but. It was the it was and I, I still believe that that was the right thing to do to stand up for them to have that 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 group you know i live in seattle it's not the most diverse city in the world um i have experienced a lot of uh racism and uh microaggressions i was in pilates just a few days ago and as i'm leaving the class there's um cubby holes where we put all of our stuff and an older woman came up to me and leaned in and said, you could just steal anything you wanted, right? You could just take whatever you like, this one, this one, this one. And I'm the only black person in this whole class, like at all. And I felt really uncomfortable. Um, so I left a note for the manager who happened to be a Latina woman and she addressed the issue, but like being vulnerable enough to say, hey, I sat in my car and I couldn't start the engine because something didn't feel right. And I think that it's hard for people to like act on that vulnerability. So in that moment for you, when you said, well, why can't they? That's kind of like those small micro decisions that we make that have good impact, right? Right. So now those people know that you're always going to be fair no matter what. And it takes the power. It takes the power out of all of the rhetoric and all of the racist things that they were doing. That There's no longer power in it because, oh, okay, why not? I, so, you know, and I think that that's important to take our power back as individuals and in what we give energy to um, and not give others permission to make us feel bad. So I think that's really great and those those micro moments really shine and when we lean into them it can do a lot of good so Absolutely. i agree with um what you preach really and i think that's amazing and i still firmly believe that was the right thing to do
and, and that, that's transitioned to just my approach to life in general. And it's, it's a way that I approach my, my classes at the university, right? And I, sh and I share that story often at the university because I think it's a great example of what it really means to be social, have social justice, right? Hopefully we get to a point where we don't have to have racism, right? We aren't there yet, but we have to be able to understand that, you know, in this society, all people, all students, right? One of my, my hashtags uh, or my, whatever you want to call it, is protocol. Protocol, I think that's my Instagram or for Facebook, tw Twitter or something. But protocol is Professor TK and it's A-L-L, all. Professor TK for all, right? And I firmly believe all, all students. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the only way that, you know, because it starts in the class, well, it starts in the home, but it starts yeah. in the classroom too. And, and we have so much power to make and affect changes, but we have to assume that responsibility and understand the the influence that we have within the classrooms to you know create these laboratories where students can experience the opportunities to to again speak and communicate and and understand how to respectfully disagree. And and it's worked fairly well because there were a time when there were lots of race riots and fights after school because students are fighting over issues and topics, right? But now you know we're having these spaces that are safe for them to you know. Hey, I have these issues, these these uh, these these situations about myself that aren't popular, and, and I'm ashamed to talk about it. And I'm like, no, let, let's talk about it. This is the place we're in class. Let's let's talk about these issues. Let's talk about all the low down, dis, dis, disgusting, dirty things in history that happened. To understand that we didn't create them, but we can talk about them and examine them, and, and it shouldn't have to be a hush hush, right? And I think that's one of the issues with society is that mm -hmm. people have somehow decided that we can't talk about those things or we hide them away and tuck them away and, and and that doesn't work right so let's find healthy ways to discuss these controversial issues and topics mm -hmm. so that we can hear others first and foremost to hear and, ha and develop some empathy and we get to express ourselves too and if we're willing to hear and someone sees that we're willing to hear and listen then perhaps you know they'll do the same we put the onus on them to do the same I have a question uh, for you. If you're not comfortable with it, I'll, I'll take it out. But no, as, love, an educator, oh, <laughs> as an educator, as an educator, how do you feel about what's going on in Florida? Because I feel like with the um, taking out and the rewriting the narrative of like slavery and history, it's I'm, I'm extremely conflicted because I remember being in class uh, when there were reading the book with the word nigger in it. I remember being forced to do the jump down, turn around, pick a bell of cotton song in front of the classroom. And there's these moments that were traumatizing for me as a young learner in an all white school um, that I don't really wish upon my unborn children. But I also do think it's important to learn about real history and what happened. So I was wondering where you fall on the spectrum of um, where that belongs and how that fits into our education system. Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I take this perspective, whether it's Florida 
or Nuremberg, Germany, with burning the books, whether we go back in history and we see the, the libraries of Alexandria and Egypt being destroyed, if we want to go back and look at the Spaniards who came and destroyed the codices of, of the native groups in, in, in uh, Central America, any time that education and literature and history is destroyed, there's, there's a, a purpose for it. And historically, it hasn't been for a good purpose, right? And, and I like the perspective you took of saying, you know, how things traumatize you. I, you, you really, I've really heard, if ever heard that perspective that you're putting out. And so where I stand on it is I haven't seen where individuals were trying to eliminate certain texts for a good purpose, right? It's, it's always been because it makes someone else feel bad. Let's, so let's, let's keep it with Florida. If, if we're removing history because it somehow it's making contemporary individuals feel bad or we don't want our students to know that we were this way, I don't think that's the, the proper approach, right? Because we, we're in a situation where we have an entire society often divided over issues and a lot of our young people don't understand why. Right. And in my classes and in my experiences, when we've talked about history and we've talked about slavery, we've talked about inequity, we've talked about, you know, uh, uh, terrorist groups like the Ku Klux Klan that, that uh, came about to try to secure, you know, economic and political power after the ending of slavery, et cetera. When students get a chance to talk and discuss and, and sort of, you know, grapple with that, they come out on a better end of understanding. Right. Um, but when we again start to hide history, now we have a, a society of clueless students. We have people who are clueless. And so, you know, for example, when you, mm -hmm. you, you had like the, the Hitler youth, um, when they would take young kids and indoctrinate them with the ideologies of the Nazi political party, right? If you give me a young child, I can teach them whatever they, right. whatever I want, right? Um, when we talk about, let's think of this way also, when, when it was illegal for slaves to read, mm -hmm. You know, a lot, oftentimes people don't ask why or they don't explore why, but, you know, why would it be illegal for slaves to read? And, and it's evident to me that, well, if someone is educated about who they are, mm -hmm. you can't enslave them. If I know that I come from something greater than this and I'm not just an inanimate right. object or a piece of property, then it's going to be hard to enslave me. But if I can keep you from knowing the history and knowing your value and knowing about, you know, international law, et cetera, I can enslave you. And so when we start to, you know, eliminate education and access to education, it, it, it's, it's not a, a great thing, right? Now, this aspect, there has to be age appropriateness. Now, that's another topic. You know, are, should certain topics be reserved for certain age groups? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. This whole idea of jump down, turn around, pick a Bella Cotton song that you were made to perform. First of all, I apologize that you had to experience something traumatic like that because that's highly inappropriate. And someone in authority should have known that was inappropriate, right? There's no way that mm -hmm. someone can convince me that, oh, I didn't know that was a wrong thing to do. But then again, ignorance can be bliss. If, if someone is ignorant of something, you, you have forgiveness. Now, mm -hmm. those individuals need to have been taught. For, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll veer off just for a second to give an example that I use a lot about this idea of ignorance being bliss. I was early in my military I don't, know what to say. I don't want to say career, but in the military, I was uh, hanging out with a bunch of dudes, happened to be all white dudes, um, and we're hanging out at, a, at one of their houses. And one of them called me the N-word. And at this time, you know, I'm straight out of Detroit, straight out of South Central. So my first inclination mm -hmm. is, what? You know, we're going to fight about this. 
But immediately all the other white guys around said, wait, wait, why did you call him that? Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. Why would you say that? What's wrong with you? And um, he, he says, um, mm-hmm. well, what? What did I say wrong? I don't I, It was wrong. It's, I didn't know that was wrong. And no, no one believed that he didn't know it was wrong, including myself. I'm like, yeah, right. But he said, you know, no, I didn't know. He said where he was from, some small town south of Houston, he said growing up, they called black people the N-word and black people called them cracker, right? And so I thought, wow, I still kind of didn't believe it. But a couple of weeks later, a couple of weeks later, um, there was some incident where somebody, a taxi driver, and I got into some disagreement and the taxi driver was threatening to do something to me. And a friend found out about it. The first person that showed up to defend me with his mm. shotgun in the back of his pickup was the guy that called me the N-word, coming to defend me. And it made me think, wow, maybe he didn't know. Maybe that is how they grew up. Okay. Wow. So, but now now he knows that that's wrong. And if he ever mm-hmm. goes there again, then that's, that's cause for, you know, some type of retribution, some other type of conversation. And so it made me realize that some people just don't know. And so mm-hmm. you get a pass, right? But when you know, that's different. So knowing what's right and wrong, one thing. So back to this idea of, of these books, I, I, I don't think is a great thing at all. I'm, I'm totally against it. I am for age appropriate, you know, introductions of certain topics and controversial topics. And we have to stop assuming that our students, our kids are not old enough to handle it. I've heard that where well, they aren't old enough or mature enough to handle these topics. And I just call BS on that, right? And you know, sometimes you'll see the the little memes that says, well, if this young black girl is old enough to experience it, your child is old enough to read about it or learn about it. You know, and and I and I get that too. It's kind of a, a tongue in cheek, but what what would be the purpose? You know, no one has convinced me yet of the purpose of eliminating these texts other than to mask the historical degradations that's been placed upon individual groups, right? Because we aren't, if, if it's about violence or whatnot, we aren't, you know, taking the right. Revolutionary War out of the textbook. We aren't taking the Civil War out of the textbook. We aren't taking right. certain things out of the textbook, but any in these areas mm-hmm. where there are people of color who have had situations perpetrated upon them, it seems that those are the areas that, that we want to erase, you know, but we'll tout, you know, all of these other acts of violence that are supposedly, you know, patriotic and the American way. So let's just be all Americans. Let's, let's, let's all have access. Let's tell our stories and then teach about why those mm-hmm. things are wrong. Teach about how we can do things differently, not eliminate the history because we don't want people to know. That's just how I feel about it. Thank you for sharing because I, you know, I, I don't have the perspective of a professional educator, but I am a student and always will be a student. Um, so I, I like your approach. Um, and that it's understandable that, you know, certain ages like need to be taught at certain times, but that's kind of like environmentally, um, up to the adults to make sound decisions. Like you said, like somebody should have known that was not great. And that was fourth grade, by the way. (laughs) So it was very early on. Um, I still knew it was wrong, but, um, with the, the song, but, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a tough discussion, but it's an important one. I feel like a lot of people sometimes can subscribe to narratives and it kind of takes over their life a little bit, you know, just being like, oh, well, that's what people assume. 
So that's what I am. That's what I'll be. Is there anything you want to say or share that for this podcast, for what we talked about, is going to give our audience something to think about when they lay their head down tonight that's going to make them, you know, a better person when they wake up? Sure. Well, I would just emphasize again that, you know, we, we live in a, a society and, a, and a, a world that's globally shrinking and we have a multiplicity of, of cultures and, and backgrounds. And, you know, for me, it's, it's these topics are not difficult for me to speak about because, number one, um, I don't sit in a position to judge anyone. Right. Um, and I feel as if not only do. I not have to judge, but it's not my job to, and I'm not, yeah. I'm not supposed to, right? So it makes it easy for me to, to talk and interact with individuals that have different perspectives. Let's, let's just talk about it, right? My podcast, let's chew the gum. Let's just talk about it. And I, and I think this idea of communication is one I want to emphasize. If you're uncertain about something, if you're uncomfortable with a particular topic, don't resort to anger and don't resort to keeping it inside to sort of deliberate with yourself because if deliberating with yourself brought about an, an ease or a comfort or a resolution, you wouldn't still be deliberating, right? Talk to somebody, find, find, create safe spaces, you know, step out of mm. your comfort zone. Don't, you know, rely on, on so much of, of what you think, you know, you know, because even our parents were miseducated often. Sometimes, you know, we, we hold on to our beliefs because we don't want to go against our families. Oh, yeah. Because we love our families, right? But that doesn't mean Uncle Jake or Uncle John or Uncle Joe or whatever it is. That don't mean that they're correct because who taught them? And sometimes a lot of people know inherently, they know what's right or wrong, but they won't speak up. So when you're in spaces where you're hearing, you know, some terrible thing said about someone, some racist joke, and you kind of go along with it and laugh, you're a part of the problem. You have to have courage. And I know everyone is, again, not going to speak up, but you mm -hmm. have to be a part of the solution. It's okay to, to not agree with, with a group of friends. And if you have friends that are, are like that, maybe that's not the best group of friends, right? Um, so have these conversations. And it, and it doesn't have to be, you know, if, we're only, if we're only talking to people that agree with us, if we're only going on social media sites that agree with us, then that's sort of reinforcing mm -hmm. what we thought we believed. It makes us, it gives us this false sense of belief that, oh, I'm correct. You see everybody else that's saying it? Well, you kind of are only in what's what we call an echo chamber. You, you know, if you yell into it, you're going to hear back what you put in it. And so when you're on social media sites and right. certain groups, right, you know, the algorithms are going to keep giving you mm -hmm. the things you're looking for. And so it gives this false sense of reinforcement that you're correct. So I would say, you know, step out of your comfort zone. Don't be don't be afraid to to listen. Oh. Right. You, you don't you don't you can't catch something from listening. You can you can catch some education, but it's, it's no harm in listening to a different perspective with the, uh, right. with the with the intention just to understand. You don't always have to you know feel like someone's trying to change your mind or indoctrinate you, but just hear a different perspective. I'm definitely willing to do it. I, I, I love to engage people mm -hmm. and, and hear you know the rationales behind how they believe. You know, I've had great conversation with lots of people and I, and I truly enjoy listening to others that I, I don't necessarily agree with. But then let's talk about it. And like one of my former professors would say, let's check out those unexamined assumptions because a lot of things we believe they're really mm. unexamined, right? Somebody said something, you experienced something once. That doesn't mean that everybody in that category fits and that you should hold them accountable. Some of those assumptions are unexamined. Let's examine them to see if they hold up. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I leave, like to leave your audience with that. That's amazing. I think that's a great note to leave our audience with 
is to make sure that you examine those assumptions. I, I really love that. That's going to stick with me for a long time. Um, thank you so much, Dr. K, for spending some time and having this very important conversation, opening up about your experiences, letting us know about your podcast and your teachings. So could you let us know where we can find you? Oh, absolutely. So my podcast, Let's Chew the Gum, is available everywhere major podcasts are downloaded. So whether it's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Podbean, you name it. Anywhere you download podcasts, it's available. I'm on season eight, probably a hundred and some odd episodes. Um, on Watch TV, the t television channel, you can find it on Roku, Amazon, uh, Fire TV, and Vita TV. Pretty soon we'll be on DTS over on the continent of Africa. And uh, my nonprofit SCORE, which is Securing Communities of Racial Equity, you can find that score.501c3.org. Um, we're always looking to collaborate with others to eliminate and eradicate racism. And um, yeah, man, that that's that's I'm, I'm I'm there. You can you know search me up. I'll, I'll leave my you know you need my full name to be able to find me. Probably not Dr. K. It's Tayari Kawanda. You can look up Professor TK at Professor underscore TK on Instagram. Doc. Tayari Kawanda on Facebook, and uh, that's where you can find me. Thank you so much, and I hope everybody out there listening got something out of this that they can hold on to and act on already. Thank you so much. Thank you. In the next episode of Aaron on Air Podcast Showcase Week, we'll explore with another podcast sensation the making of great conversation and meaningful discussion.